You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Ah, bless the Lord. Come on. It's so good to be home. I mean, like home for real, like home, home. So we close on our home and we are in Fort Worth now. Come on. Not without a little bit of warfare, but we're here. All right, we're here. And so we're so excited to be back in our homeland here in Fort And I'm glad we took care of the spiritual house first. We connected with our spiritual home first. Mercy culture. I love Pastor Landon, Pastor Heather. Can we give it up for our pastors? Oh, my God. I pray refreshing, blessing over them. My God, it's such an honor to be here in this house. So. If you would, turn with me in your Bible, turn on your Bible to John 17. And some of y'all may have heard me share this message today. Some of y'all know what this kettle is doing up here. I'll get to that in a moment. I, I don't want to make the quilt people mad because they want to see the other side of this thing. So I'm going to take this and turn it around while y'all turn to the scripture. <laughs> I appreciate the guys bringing that out for me, though. That was helpful. He was bringing that case out. I thought, man, he's strong. And I realized, oh, the kettle is not in there. He weighs 86 pounds in that case. And so uh, just so you know, too, uh, a lot of what I share today, most of it, all of it, honestly, is here in this book. It's called The Dream King or The Dream of Martin Luther King's Being Fulfilled to Hell Racism in America. And uh, we're talking about today about what? Expanding territory through relationships and one of the relationships that God wants to bring healing to is all the divides that the enemy's trying to bring this whole thing that all the stuff that's going on right now with uh, uh, ethnic racial division especially but then also there's the division between the generations you know it, the enemy is trying to do everything he can to keep us divided you have a nation called the United States of America, you can expect that the enemy is going to try to divide your country, especially if it has a godly foundation. So, and a lot of people talk about, you know, critical race theory and all those different things. And it's true. There's some things about it for me that's problematic. One specifically is that the ending presupposition that they have is that all white people are perpetual racists, all black people are perpetual victims. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a lie. Yeah, that's a lie. Right. And so, yeah, we need to resist that. But then at the same time, there are things that the Lord wants to address in healing that. So the church has to be the answer. Listen, there is a God narrative that God wants to release to bring healing in that area. So, uh, yeah, critical race theory, that's one thing. But I believe that there's critical grace theory. I believe that there is a redemptive way, a redemptive thing that's been happening in history where God has been healing this divide because of what he did through Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to share my story in a way I've never shared it before. I've been a wreck all week, y'all, preparing for this message. You know, one of my ways of connecting with God is through learning first, meditation and memory. And I've been getting rocked in all those different ways this week because I've been learning deeper. I've been working in the area of reconciliation internationally for over 30 years. But God did a refreshing thing in my heart when Pastor Landon asked me to hit on this message on 
expanding territory through relationships. And he had me look at this whole thing of reconciliation, the way he's had me look at it. So John 17, we're going to start there with Jesus, the one who brought peace, the reconciler himself. I love John 17. You know why? Because it's Jesus praying for us. We get to overhear Jesus praying for us. How many of you have ever overheard somebody else praying for you? Right? I remember the first time I really like overheard my mother praying for me. It was about 30 some odd years ago. I was a backslidden Christian knucklehead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, coming out of college. I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, but I decided to come home for the summer. And uh, some of my friends from Atlanta were in town. And so I thought, you know, let's go out to the club. We'll hang out like we hang out in Atlanta. Well, I got a little tipsy. I got, okay, I got a lot tipsy. I was drunk. <laughs> I got drunk and I decided to come home to my mama's house who had never seen me like that in Fort Worth. My little praying mama, she's a quiet little lady, but I t so I thought I'd sneak in the house so she wouldn't notice me. So I, I tip into the house at three in the morning thinking I wasn't going to wake up mama, but who's up at three in the morning praying for me? My mama, and she's going to town. Devil, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Delilah, I see your hand. Jezebel, you better black up, back up. I plead the blood, the blood, the blood. <laughs> Old saints knew something about the blood. I never heard her pray like that. I'm like, man, man, no wonder I couldn't get any phone numbers tonight. Mama's blocking everything. I heard one preacher say it like this. He said, the only difference between a praying mama and a pit bull is lipstick. Because a praying mama don't let go. She gets a grip. And just like a pit bull, she don't let go. Y'all talking about a buzzkill? That was a buzzkill. Sober me up. I listened to my mother pray for almost an hour. She didn't know I was there. But it impacted my life over here and her contend for my destiny, my purpose in Christ. So about a year or so later, I like for real, for real, gave my life to the Lord. I told mama, I said, mama, yeah, no idea. But I heard you praying for me one night by three in the morning. I snuck in a little drunk, but I overheard you praying for me and it, it changed me. It impacted me. I never forgot that moment. I said, you didn't know I was on the other side of that door that night, but thank you for praying for me. She said, oh, I knew you were there. I knew you were there the whole time. I just wanted you to know what God had placed on my heart concerning his purpose, his plan, and his destiny for your life. Church, John 17, Jesus allowing us to overhear his prayer meeting for us. It's his shoulders us up. It should impact our hearts. What is he praying? Here's the thing he's contending for the most before he goes on the cross. John 17, verse 18. As thou didst send me into the world, I will also send them into the world. Talking about the 12 disciples. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the 12 disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, now he's praying for you. Yeah, he's praying for us. What is he praying? That they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst sent me. And the glory which thou hast given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. 
that the world may know that thou hast sent me and this love them even as thou hast love me. Isn't that powerful? But then if you flip over to Acts, the second chapter, real quick, we see the first manifestation of this reality, and it is still going on right now. You're going to hear in this message how we are at the continuation of this right now because he's raising up the one new man in Christ. And here's where it begins in Acts chapter 2. We know the story. The Holy Spirit falls. The glory of God is released. Cloven tongues of fire on head. And we focus on that so much. But you're going to understand this greater in a new light. What was actually going on? And so he says, so those who were looking were perplexed. And he said, uh, verse 5, now there were Jews living from, in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation and under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the mighty Russian ran, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why are not all of these speaking Galileans? And how is it that they each other hear them in their own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues and speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And when they all continue in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? tell you what it means. It means stay in the room. Stay in the room. If we could just stay in the room for just a little while longer, we're going to be part of an epic outpouring that's going to change the world. Can I pray for you? Oh, Jesus. We overheard you praying for us. Give us the grace to respond to your voice in this thing, God. To be part of this one new man that you raised up. In this hour, give us your unfinished business in this season. Make us ambassadors. Make us reconcilers. Raise us up with people who love what you love and hate what you hate and reach out to people that don't look like them or think like them. Baptize us with a love that the, love, that the world has never seen before. And use a united church to heal a divided nation, a divided family, a divided city. Reconcile people to yourself today, we ask. And connect us together in ways we've never known before. In Jesus' name, when all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So some of y'all are wondering what this hunk of tin is doing up here. Uh, actually, to me, it's connected to a very famous speech. Matter of fact, if you go ahead and play it, this is one minute. Let me play this little clip from the I Have a Dream speech. I'll give you a little background, a little story behind it. Go ahead and play that. You can turn the volume up just a little bit. There you go. Because I can't. I can't preach it the way he preached it, so. We'll hear the words. Dr. King said, oh, I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves, sons of former slave owners, 
that they would be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. But you know the powerful thing about this speech? Powerful thing about that speech is that little phrase, I have a dream. Did y'all know that phrase was actually birthed out of a prayer meeting? It's actually birthed out of a prayer meeting. There's a little girl named Prathia Hall. A few years earlier, Dr. King was in a prayer meeting at a church that had been burned down by the Ku Klux Klan. So there in the middle of that hatred, there's this little girl named Prathia Hall. She's 22 years old. How do you like to have the name Prathia? Her daddy named her after prayer. He was a powerful black Baptist preacher, and she was an amazing preacher in her own right. She had a, uh, went to Princeton Theological Seminary. She was an amazing woman of God, powerful preacher. But she's 22 years old in that scenario. She's in this church, burned down by hatred. And in the middle of those ashes, Prathia Hall began to pray, I have a dream. And she starts naming off her own list. Dr. King came up to her later and said, young lady, that that phrase you used was, was so powerful. You mind if I bar that? She said, uh, yes, sir, by all means. So Dr. King used the phrase, I have a dream, and incorporated that phrase in his prayer life for over a year before he ever used it on a platform. It's part of his prayer life. Then when he's in Detroit about a month before the March on Washington, he and his speechwriters were working on the speech he was going to use at the, the Mall in Washington, had everything written down, and at the end, he starts saying what he'd been praying for over a year. I have a dream. And he starts naming off his own list. His friend, Mahalia Jackson. How many of y'all familiar with Mahalia Jackson? She's powerful gospel singer. That was one of his best friends. She loved that addition to the speech, but his speechwriters didn't like it so much. They said, Doc, you know, that I have a dream stuff is too cliche. Let's take that out when we go to Washington. So reluctantly, Dr. King agreed. So, y'all know the rest of the story. It's a month later. Dr. King is reading his speech verbatim. If you get the right version of the I Have a Dream speech, you hear somebody in the background. After he gets to reading his speech verbatim, somebody in the background says, Martin, tell him about the dream. That was Mahalia Jackson. And then he kicks in, I have a dream. And the rest is history. All because he overheard somebody else in the prayer meeting. Question, who's being impacted by your prayer life? I'm not saying you need to be praying with one eye open. See who walks in the room. What I was saying is, there has to be something on us that's contending for the next generation. And then think about it, Dr. King took that young lady's prayer and cast it as a vision for us all. You know why? It's connected to John 17. It's connected to John 17 where we get to overhear Jesus praying for us. And that's what you're going to learn about today is what is God doing in the area of healing our divides between us and reconciling us to each other, especially ethnically, racially. What does that look like? Well, the first time we see this happening, you go from the prayer room with Jesus to the upper room. And what happens in the upper room? There are 120 people there, all different languages, and they were in one spot. Now, think about it. Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Remember that? He appears to 500 people 40 days after he's resurrected. But if 500 he appeared to, but only 120 show up to the upper room, what happened to the 380? Maybe they didn't want to be quarantined. <laughs> How did y'all do during quarantine a couple of years ago? My wife was sick of me in quarantine. After two days of quarantine, she was like, don't you have somewhere to go speak or something? 
I was a mess. I didn't handle it too well. Stand up. This is my wife, DeHavlin. My God, powerful. My favorite preacher on the planet. Come on. So, uh, so maybe they want to be quarantined because they had to stay in the city of Jerusalem for 10 days. Some people say actually in the upper room, which was a big house, upper room. They were there for 120 days. And people of different languages. You know, when languages fail, what happens? You start using gestures to try to talk. Well, guess what? The OK sign in America doesn't mean the same thing in Brazil. Yeah, it's like giving somebody the middle finger almost. Right? So they probably made mistakes and gestures with each other. Right? But guess what happens? You read, you know the rest of the story. The Holy Spirit falls, cloven tongues of fire on all their heads. I was talking to a good friend of mine, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas. He said, you know, I just realized something, Will. One of the most powerful things that happened in that upper room. People of all different nationalities, written in all different languages are there. There are even two different warring factions in the room. In other words, there were two nations represented that were at war against each other. How would you like to have that? You find out somebody's from a neighboring nation and your grandfather or father or brother or cousin is warring against their grandfather, brother or cousin. And y'all in the same room because Jesus asked you to show up in the same place. So they're there. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls. And so, yes, powerful things happen later. But listen, the most powerful thing that happened initially in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was outpoured, the most powerful thing that happened at first was that for the first time, they, un- they understood one another. They understood one another. And when he said that to me, I heard the Lord say this, stay in the room. Stay in the room and don't be like the 380 and go back to what's familiar. Stay in the room, lean in the awkward, and don't go back to what you already know before. Listen, if we could stay in the room, y'all, just for a little while longer, we can be part of an epic outpouring that could change the world. If we will stay in the room, we'll get to know God and each other a whole lot more powerfully if we can stay in the room. So the thing is this, Jesus dealt with Racism. He dealt with dealing with racism, even against himself. But the way he handled it is not the way we handled it. First time I really saw this happen, where he addresses this, is in Luke 9, 51. Luke 9, 51, that's where he's uh, trying to go into a Samaritan village. He wants to cut through that Samaritan village, so he sends some of the disciples to let the Samaritans know they wants to cut through. This is significant because the Samaritans at that time and the Jews had 400, at least 400 years of hostility against each other. Jews felt like they were defiled if they walked through or connected with Samaritans. They would walk all the way around Samaria to get to where they wanted to go. And the Samaritans did the exact same thing. It's like when I grew up here in Fort Worth, there were certain neighborhoods I couldn't cut through at night. I couldn't cut through the stockyards a certain time of night. There were certain people that couldn't cut through my neighborhood. Regardless of skin color, sometimes it was the wrong t-shirt. Remember the Crips and Bloods thing that used to happen here? Yeah, so... Same thing, Jesus dealt with that. And so he wants to cut through, but they say, no, you can't cut through because basically you're a Jew. And so the disciples get mad. You know what they say? They say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on, on this whole neighborhood and just, just nuke it? You want us to call down a Molotov cocktail from heaven and destroy this place? And Jesus said, listen, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy man's lives, but to what? save them. But then before he said that, he said this. 
you don't know what spirit you're speaking from. In other words, he is saying this. You think you want justice? Nah. You don't know what spirit you're speaking from. Really, you want revenge. And the anger of man will never achieve the righteousness of God. But then he goes on to address the racism that he experiences. How? He knows that, listen, this is not, I battle y'all in dealing with this. Primarily, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So how does Jesus deal with it? Luke 10, he sends out the 72 to preach the gospel. And they come back to him. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Saw Satan fall like lightning. I don't think he was talking about what happened at the beginning of the age. I think he was talking about what happened over the region. Listen, because the gospel had been preached, the hearts had been transformed, what is happening? Now the principality over the area is being dislodged. It didn't have the authority they had over the people that he had before. And in the place of that open heaven, they ask Jesus, a, uh, a lawyer comes to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor then? Jewish man says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, oh, you want to know who your neighbor is? And then he tells him the story about a good Samaritan. Why would he tell him a story about a good Samaritan? Jesus, didn't you experience, you just experienced racism from the Samaritans. Why are you telling a story about a good Samaritan? He's saying, because the heavens are open right now, I'm going to use this opportunity to destigmatize the very people they can't stand. And I'm going to tell the story about a good police officer. I'm going to tell the story about a good black man. I'm going to tell the story about a good white man. I'm going to tell the story about a good Samaritan. I'm going to tell the story about a good Hispanic man. I'm going to tell the story about a good Jewish man. Why? Because I'm going to destigmatize the very people you can't stand. Listen, y'all, it's time for the church to take control of the narrative and fight in the opposite spirit and tear down the dividing walls the enemy is trying to erect. And one of the ways we do this, listen, I didn't share this in the first service. I'm sorry, y'all, if y'all hear it. <laughs> but I got to share this. The way, you know, my, this has been my modus operandi for, help, for doing this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. I memorized this in many different versions, so I'm going to give you the will for it, paraphrase version. It says this, But the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be gentle. Kind to all, able to instruct, so that those who are those who are in opposition may repent and come to their senses and escape the snare of Satan who's taken them captive to do his will. In other words, this is a spiritual thing more than we realize. So what does that look like? I remember my wife and I were living in a neighborhood at one particular time, and this gentleman said something to my wife that was pretty ugly. And, uh, and uh, she told me the situation. She said, I felt like it was like this, this thing, like a, like a racist thing or whatever. He's, of course, it's always the devil's formula, right? A white person, black person, the whole thing. And so uh, <clears throat> he didn't use the N-word or whatever, but she said that the way he came at me was really bad. And so I thought I'd go down to his house and, you know, have a conversation. <laughs> I probably didn't know what spirit I was speaking from. I probably was like that. Remember that song that came out, uh, Try Jesus, but don't try me. I was probably, I didn't know what spirit I was speaking from. But when I got to his home, his son-in-law met me and said, hey, I'm so sorry. He's, you know, older and, 
He apologized. I accepted his apology. And then I saw that gentleman later on, and guess what? He apologized without apologizing, you know? You know how people do that? Like, oh, my God, your shoelaces are amazing. Can I get that car though for you? Can I start the car for you? That, that kind of thing. The Lord told me, he's older gentleman. Just accept that. But his daughter, interesting thing, whenever she saw me or my wife, she just acted like she didn't see us. So I thought, okay, well, you know what? Talk to the hand. I don't see you either. But the Lord dealt with me about that. Here's what happens. Our kids were on the playground. Her two kids were with the grandfather. We had, you know, got moved on. But my two boys are there on the playground with them. But when I show up on the playground, their oldest little girl, about six or seven years old, she starts to scream, I'm ready to leave right now. I'm like, okay, maybe she's been out here for a little while. And he said to her, no, sweetheart, we just got here. Why do you want to leave? And then she starts stomping her feet and crying and says, I'm ready to go now. And she starts glaring at me. And then all of a sudden, that little girl, her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She fell on the ground, and she started going like this. Now, I'm pretty analytical, so the second thing I thought is, okay, maybe she's having like an epileptic fit. Maybe this is a sunstroke. That was my second thought. My first thought was this, that's a demon. It's the demon of racism and division in this family. It's generational and it's affecting the next generation. Use the authority I've given you to address it. I'm thinking, okay, God, I don't have a piano behind me or anything. I don't have a microphone. This is a playground. Is this like... And so I went to ask the gentleman, like, has this ever happened before? But the first thing that came out of my mouth is this. In the name of Jesus, stop and come out. And she went limp. And for some reason, he couldn't pick her up. I had to pick up this little girl and take her home. So I'm pick her up. And I'm like, okay, devil, this is not going to be like the exorcist too. I bind, I bind you in Jesus. I'm like, hucka shucka, lucka, hucka shucka. There's not going to be green pea juice spit on me or whatever. I'm just hucka shucka, lucka, hucka shucka, lucka, hucka shucka, lucka. I'm praying. But I get to the front door of the home. The mother who had been resisting me opens the door and said, what's going on with my daughter? What happened? I was like, listen, your, your, your father's right behind me. Let me just lay on the couch. I lay on her couch and she comes too. They took her to the doctor later on. Nothing was wrong with it. Listen, this was a spiritual issue. But in that moment, the Lord was dealing not with them, but he was grieved with me. I'm crying and I don't know why. I get home and the Lord said to me, William, Every time you walk past that mother and you chose not to overcome evil with good by just saying hi, you were empowering the very demon that's destroying that family and it's affecting the next generation. Because the authority I've given you in this area, you don't get to respond to this the way the world does and expect for me to use you to bring healing. He said, you're not the Democrats' bondservant or the Republicans' bondservant. You're my bondservant. And you don't get the right to respond to this the way the world does. Church, we don't get the right to respond to none of this stuff the way the world does. There are lives at stake. There are generations of being affected. We can't perpetuate wounding and pain by how we have a callous response to what's going on right now. And this is for all of us. We don't get the right to respond to this the way the world does. Because we're the Lord's servant. It says kind to all. You know what it means in the Greek, that word all? All. <laughs> gentle, gentle, patient when wrong. You're going to get wrong in this. Able to instruct. In other words, we need to know our stuff. 
so that those in opposition may repent and come to their senses and escape the snare of Satan who's taking the captive to do his will. This thing is way more spiritual than we realize. Because we don't realize what Jesus did for us. Look with me real quick. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. And here's what he says to them in Ephesians 2. I love Ephesians 2 because in Ephesians 2, he first starts off talking about he starts off talking about grace and the impact it's had on us, but then he starts talking about race. So first he says this. Let's start at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Thus establishing his peace and might reconcile. Everybody say reconcile. Them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. What is going on in this particular passage? Let me tell you what's going on. In this particular scripture, where it says that he broke down the dividing wall, according to one of the commentators that I like to look at, Spiros Odiatus, he said that it's the word phagmos. It's the, it's the dividing wall. There was a little wall that separated Gentiles from coming into the Jewish temple. And if anybody came in that was a, that was a Gentile, they would try to kill him. Matter of fact, if a Jewish man tried to bring a Gentile friend into the temple, they would try to kill him. Ask Paul. In Acts 21, that's literally what happened. He has, he's accused, falsely accused, of bringing an Ephesian into the temple. So it's interesting. Years later, after he's been beat for connecting with this Ephesian man, he writes the letter to, letter to the Ephesians about Christ abolishing the very dividing wall that he was built he did, Paul was beat to death almost because he wanted to bring reconciliation. In other words, Apostle Paul laid his life down for reconciliation. So he's writing this letter to the Ephesians regarding that. And the word there for a dividing wall is a thorny hedge that's usually connected to a vineyard wall. So it's not just any dividing wall, but it's one that has thorns. How many of you know the enemy is trying to poke prod, offend in ways we have never seen before. But the powerful thing, I like the way I was talking to Bosa about this. She said, you know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, that thorny hedge, he tore it, took it and wore it as a crown on his head on the cross. And he died for all of our divisive things that we have done. That's what he did. He broke down the barrier of that dividing wall. And then he goes on to say that he Reconciled. What's the word reconciliation? The one, the, uh, it's two words for reconciliation. One word for reconciliation is katalazzo. It's the one most commonly used. I've always thought of the reconciliation. I've, I've heard people say this. I've said this before. Listen, how can you have reconciliation when there was never a conciliation in the first place? And that's true. I understand what people are saying with that. But they don't understand how supernatural 
God's reconciliation is through us, through Christ Jesus. Because kataloso, you know what it means? It means to restore, erase, to restore a relationship that previously did not exist. That's what kataloso means. It means to restore a relationship that previously didn't exist. Listen, we never had a conciliatory relationship with God before, before Jesus. Our sins were hostile, and they kept us separated from God. But Jesus Christ reconciled us to God and restored a relationship that previously didn't exist. I believe even today, right now, God wants to restore a relationship with someone that previously didn't exist because of what his son did upon the cross. Whether you're watching online, you're here right now, I beseech you by the mercies of God. Be reconciled to Christ today. And then beyond that, there's another word that's powerful. The word for, another word for reconcile is apokatalazo. Apokatalazo. According to Spirit Zodiatus, it's the most powerful word for reconciliation. Apokatalazo means to restore the peace in a relationship that had previously been disturbed. That's the word he used to describe what happens to us. He reserved the most powerful word for reconciliation for what God did for us. He restores a peace in relationships that previously have been disturbed. To create what? This one new man in Christ. Oh, one new man. So there are a couple of different Greek words for new. One is neos. Like you're neo, remember from the Matrix? Right? That word neos literally means quantitative in order of succession. But that's not the word that's used there for one new man. Listen, y'all, that word for new is the word kainos. It's the two words, kainos, anthropos. Anthropos means man or mankind. But kainos is not just any word for new. That word means qualitatively different, distinct, never existed before, one of a kind. What does that look like? Well, when I finally switched over from the Android phone and got my little iPhone years ago, I know I'm an Appalachian like some of y'all, <laughs> but I stayed stuck with my little iPhone 7 forever. iPhone 12s and 13s were coming out and I'm still stuck with the iPhone 7. And I was depending on upgrades every five seconds, right? Every time I got an upgrade, in the Greek that would be, Neos. Now, if I was to go out and get an iPhone 14, that would be kainos. Something new, distinct, that hadn't been around before. Listen, that's the word that's used to describe your salvation experience. You became a new creation in Christ. You became a kainos creation in Christ. New, distinct, different, never existed before. The only one that's like you on earth is the man who sits on the throne in heaven. The same self-same spirit that dwells in Christ Jesus dwells in you. Now your spirit and your, your soul and your mind are being renewed day by day, but your spirit has totally been changed. You are not the same. That's why back in the day, remember, you'd be walking around, you need to find some weed, you want to find some drugs, you knew exactly where to go. You just had a demonic anointing to find out where they were selling the drugs or where the weed was at and what club, what club was at. But now, you have a new nature. You don't want to cuss anymore. You used to cuss all the time. I was the worst of them. I was the chief among them. But now, I don't want to cuss anymore. Now, if I, want to, if I connect with another believer, something quick is inside of me. I know somebody as a Christian just by saying hi to them. Why? Because my nature has been changed. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You have become a kind of creation. New, distinct, 
totally different. Everything changes in Jesus. It's supernatural. Yes, it's, it's, it's positional, but it's also experiential. But then he goes on to say, that we're the kinos anthropos. Oh, beloved, listen. We are part of the one new man in Christ. And that word for new, there is kinos. We are totally different, distinct, never been seen before. We get to be part of that. That's why he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. We're all one in Christ, right? Now, that doesn't say that those distinctions don't matter. This just means that all those distinctions get absorbed into who we are in our identity in Christ. I love the way Peter says, 1 Peter 2 and 9 says, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession who proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Word for chosen race, where the word race, there's the word genos, is where we get the word for genes. In other words, we're the offspring, we're the spiritual DNA of Christ. It says you're chosen nation. That word nation, there's the word ethnos, is where we get the word ethnicity. In other words, as offspring of Father God, we are on racial identity as believers. In other words, before I'm an African-American, I'm first and foremost a Christian in America. Before you're an Italian-American, you're first and foremost a Christian in America. Before you're an Hispanic-American, first and foremost a Christian in America. When we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, something powerful happens. Become be part of this spiritual house. Living stones fitly framed and joined together. He didn't say living bricks. We're not living bricks. It's uniform. It's not about uniformity. What is it about? It's about being fitly framed. And you ever see a stonemason put a house together? A brick mason just brick after brick after brick. They all look the same. No, a stonemason, he has to take his time. He gets one stone and he puts it up. Then he has to find another stone to fitly frame that one. That's what God is doing to us as a spiritual house. There's a unity through diversity that is so powerful in Christ that builds the beautiful mosaic of the kainos anthropos that is beautiful. And that's how God is using United Church to heal the divided nation. So what does that have to do with me and this kettle pot and this story? Everything. Because I understand more about this one new man than ever in my life. This pot came from the slaves of my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. That's why it was passed down to my family. The slave master would literally beat me for hearing and praying because he didn't want them praying for freedom. But they would sneak away and pray anyway. They would go into a barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this pot. So they would take the pot, they would turn it upside down on the cabin floor and prop it up with rocks so it would be suspended off the edge about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves in the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that this kettle popped up for their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. One day, there's this young teenage girl from that time period. She decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. You know why? She overheard somebody else in a prayer meeting. And she knew that she wasn't the only recipient of these other people's sacrifice. 
So she keeps this pot and this story in our family, and she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett had a son named William Ford Sr., who then passed the pot on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. And I was at a conference on prayer with Dutch Sheets, and I heard this talk about taking up the unfinished business of those gone before us and praying for the first time. Hebrews 11:39 and 40 made sense to where it says, all these by faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they would be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people, y'all, looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. Because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said what? Greater works and needs are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And they are part of that kainos anthropos, one new man in heaven who is saying, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have unfinished business. So Dutch Sheets and I start praying by doing a prayer journey together around the country to use this pot as an object lesson for intercessory prayer. Yeah, they use this pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayers and being heard. But literally, listen, there's a prayer bowl called the Revelation 5 and 8. There's, there's a golden bowl in heaven full of incense, which is what? The prayers of the saints. Every time you pray, it's collected, not in a Tupperware bowl, or a wooden bowl, but a golden bowl. You know why? Because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Listen, Mercy Culture, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Fort Worth. There's a prayer bowl over our nation. God's looking for a new generation of people to resource the prayer bowls of heaven. So Dutch was praying for confirmation. He said, God, you want me to have some cash down cooking pot represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He said his Bible fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord should be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught before prayers. The was a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. And Dutch said this to me. He said, William, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. Like I said, there were white Christian abolitionists and revivalists. I knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. Listen, they laid their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. They were also shot, killed, and lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And they helped me to understand some. See, people talk about how, yeah, the Bible was used to keep people in slavery, but there was another group of people that used that same Bible to set a whole nation free, to set their brothers and sisters in slavery free. And they risked their lives to reconcile. And they helped me understand something. See, they were fighting for family. They were fighting for their spiritual. Question, who is it that doesn't look like you that you know is part of your spiritual family and you're supposed to fight for them? You're supposed to contend for them. I realized my ancestors, if they had been Muslims or Buddhists, I had no connection to this part of his history. But because they were Christians, listen, not only these, my ancestors and forefathers, no matter what the color of your skin looks like, if you're a Christian, these were your forefathers too. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of, of, of John Wesley and Harriet Beecher Stowe as you are Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, we have a shared inheritance, something powerful happens. Oil starts to flow. Anointings start to mingle. Yokes get broken over generations. Because there was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott. Everybody thought that law sealed the fate of slavery in our nation. They called it settled law. Listen, y'all, nothing is settled 
until God says it's settled. But God sent a, sent a revival that was so powerful, Dred Scott get, just broke in the hearts of people. Listen, y'all, the same God that broke the power of Dred Scott, he's just now broken the power of Roe v. Wade, and he's putting an end to systemic poverty. He's putting an end to our schools being a pipeline to prison. He's shutting down mass incarceration. He's putting an end to the opiate crisis in the suburbs, and he's going to shut down crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who realize they're the kainos, anthropos, and they're one new man in Christ, and then they shake up things in the spirit. Drop their agendas and come together and believe. See, back then... The litmus test for authentic revival was the ending of slavery. Today, the litmus test for authentic revival will be the ending of abortion. And it deals with the race issue in ways, I mean, I don't have time to go into it. Here's the deal, y'all. When the people that you cannot see, talking about the child in the womb, when the people that you cannot see can become optional, it's inevitable that other people that we can see can also be dehumanized and marginalized even to the place of elimination. Some people say black lives matter. Hey, I, I can understand the emphasis. Hard for me to get with the entity. They got too many houses. I can understand the whole thing with all lives matter. I understand what people are kind of tr trying to convey, but God is saying, drill down deeper. Life matters. God is restoring the value of human dignity from the womb to the tomb, from the cradle to the grave. But the Lord said to me, but in order to be a part of this, William, you got to deal with your own baggage. He addressed that to this dream that he gave me about the dream of Martin Luther King. In the dream, my friend Lou Engel and I on our, way, on our way to Dr. King's old church, but we had to pick up Dr. King. So it's a dream, right? So he's alive. And we go to pick up Dr. King, but he comes out of this house and he has this humongous white duffel bag with white, black handles on it. White bag, black handles. He starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Throws the bag down violently and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. It shows you how petty I am, right? Like even in my dreams, I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse, he went to Morehouse, the bag will make a nice souvenir. That's what I thought. But in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulder and says, no, do not go back and pick that up. He starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in our nation. I wake up from the dream in tears. Shared the dream, my friend Lou Engel, he begins to weep. We start praying, God, what is the interpretation for this dream? And the Lord, help me understand the white bag represented my white baggage. The black handles represented my ethnicity as an African-American man. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. That's what God is doing. Now he's having all of us deal with this. And the question for all of us right now is this, what color is your baggage? Lord is saying, get rid of it, y'all, because we need each other. Because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. So shortly after that dream, the Lord connected me to some more unfinished business. If you put up that first slide for me, my friend Luingo said, hey, come share this story at the Lincoln Memorial MLK Celebration Days, 2005. Cold as all get out that day, you can tell. Zero degrees, eight hours in a prayer meeting, but this was a powerful prayer meeting, y'all. Follow that hand with the blue sleeve. You see my little face. We're praying for revival, praying for a cultural life to be released. I'm not the person who took this picture, of course. The person who took this picture is a man named Matt. Matt was led to this gathering because he had a dream. He dreamt 
that he was in a prayer meeting with a man he had never met before named Lou Engle, my friend, and they were praying for revival and the ending of abortion. He woke up in the dream perplexed because he didn't care about any of those things. And he thought, who and what is a Lou Engle? So he thought, does this person even exist? He types his name into this newly invented thing called Google. And up popped the face of the man that he saw in his dream is Lou Engle, and he's praying for revival and praying for a cultural life. He freaks out. So he decides to come to this prayer gathering. And uh, I'm sharing a story about this pot and where it came from. And I get to the end, I said this pot comes from the locket side of my family. I look out, and there's this white guy with his hands buried in his beard. He's shaking and crying. It's Matt. He comes up. He introduces himself. He said, hey, you just said locket. My daughter elbowed me and said, that's our last name, Dad. He just said our name. So I'm kind of freaking out because I'd never met a locket before. I said, how do y'all spell locket with two T's or one? And I just waited. He said, we spell it with two. I said, oh, my family, we spell it with one. Where are your lockets from? He said, Kentucky. I said, oh, my, mine were down in Louisiana. So we thought it was a cool coincidence, but it was enough to connect us as friends. We've been friends for over 18 years. He wound up doing the very dream that he had back then. He took over Lou Engle's prayer ministry in Washington, D.C. He's been in front of that Supreme Court 18 years with duct tape over his mouth with life written on it, doing a silent prayer meeting for 18 years and prayed in four Supreme Court justices, most of them through dreams. He's the most faithful intercessor in America I've ever met. Glad to know him as my friend. So our friend Lou Engle decided to do a prayer meeting in Virginia at Appomattox Courthouse, the place where the South surrendered to the North in the Civil War. And they go into this visitor center and you know, they, just, they just grab the first random book off the shelf that catches their eye. They open it up, and if you go to the next slide, the book says this, The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. Because my friend Matt is freaking out, and he's like, what is this story? Reads it. Turns out that the last battle of the Civil War had happened in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two Gs, just like his name. He thought, man, what a cool coincidence. About that time, his brother called him and said, hey, man, I just got the research on our family history. That's not just any Lockett family. That's our family. In other words, my friend Matt Lockett found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard in Virginia. So if you go to the next slide, this is the house. It still has a memorial stone in the front. That's the house there. It still has the bullet holes in it from the Civil War. If you go to the next slide, you see my friend um, Matt and his family. If you go to the next slide, you'll see this man is shown on the bullet holes that are still in it from the Civil War. And if you go to the next slide, the man invites him into the house and he shows Matt the family tree of that Lockett family. Matt pulls out his brother's research. It fits like a hand in a glove. It's his family. Then the gentleman asked him, he said, how much more do you know about your family? He said, not much. He said, well, a lot of y'all left from here and went to Kentucky. Matt says, I know that part. But then he said this, but some of y'all left from here and went down to Louisiana. And sometimes there were clerical errors in how they spelled your name, and they would drop one of the T's off the end of your name. When he heard that, he remembered the conversation that we had had the first time we met. Matt flies from D.C. to Dallas, lays out his research. I pull out my family's research. And we just talked and prayed and cried, honestly. If you go to the next slide, see, this is my oldest known family member in Lake Providence. It was believed to be a man named Isaac Lockett. He shows up in the 1870 census. He's there in Lake Providence, but in this document, he said he was originally from Virginia. You know, our slaves always took on the last names of people who owned them. And we looked it up. Matt's family was the only Lockett family that owned slaves in Virginia at that time. 
Slaves will be transferred off or transported across the country. This led to another year and a half of research, and here's where we learned from our empirical evidence. It was my friend Matt Lockett's family who owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So here's my family praying for the ending of slavery, and then all the way up at the farmhouse where the people used to own them, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, and he loves to heal history, Jesus breaks down the wall of division between Matt and I, removes the hostility, and connects us together so we can be friends together for 10 years before we find this thing out so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening in our time to be part of the Kainos Anthropos, the one new man in Christ Jesus in our day and in our time because he loves to heal history. And it's time to tell the rest of his story. So, Jesus, I'm getting choked up. Help me. So, it's just mind-blowing to see what Jesus is doing with all this stuff. So, how crazy the story is. So, Matt had two people in his family. Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett, they were like the gone with the wind aristocrats. And uh, Mary Lockett didn't like the fact that the Southern White House didn't have its own flag. So, she designed the first ever Confederate flag. And if you go to the slide that has it there for me, so she designs the first ever, she designs this flag, it's called the Stars and Bars, hand-delivered it to her friend Jefferson Davis. But they thought, you know what, we need to have a Confederate battle flag for the battlefield, so then they designed this next flag. But think about it, through the same family, listen, Matt's family basically became the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. But through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up on our nation, next slide. The flag of surrender goes up in their front yard because you're a praying people. And we stay stuck there for years. And if you read our book, you'll understand some of the internal turmoil that God had us work through. God brought great healing to us. I realized that's why I had that get rid of your baggage of unforgiveness dream before I ever met him. And he realized, you know what, I've been too dismissive of the pain of people. We have folks that, you know what, well, we're going to withhold forgiveness because, hey, we can't let these folks off the hook. Another group says, oh, we're going to withhold repentance because we don't want to take it, you know, uh, we're going to win by just withholding that. And God is saying, no, 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 no. First one to love wins. There's a kingdom approach to healing this thing in the culture and in the church because God has already broken down the divide wall, y'all. So, but then my friend Matt Lockett just happened to run across a book on the Methodist circuit riders, and he found a man named Daniel Lockett in there who was a circuit rider, and it was one of his family members. What does that mean? It was huge. Circuit riders were strong abolitionists and revivalists, and took a strong stand against slavery. So, yeah, he had slave owners in his family, but also had revivalists and abolitionists in the same family. It's like all of our families. We have these things called generational blessings and generational curses that represent these dominating themes of storylines. And what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? Last story. So Matt and his family has a story about Lucy Lockett who walked in on two slaves trying to learn how to read and write. Back then it was against the law for slaves how to read, learn how to read and write or anybody to teach them how to read and write. Lucy sees this mother trying to teach her five-year-old son how to read, and they thought it was going to be some bad consequences for that. But she said, no, there's going to, 
we're going to change the storyline. That's what I think she kind of said. And she teaches both of them how to read and write. We know that story because that five-year-old boy grew up to be a man named Robert Russell Moden. And he put that story in his autobiography. Who's Robert Russell Moden? He became an educational advisor to four presidents. He became the second president of Tuskegee University. And when the Lincoln Memorial was dedicated, he's the man that did the dedication speech. And then 41 years later, Dr. King would come to those same steps to declare, I have a dream. And then 41 years later, Matt Lockett and I would meet each other at the same steps, led by dreams. Think about it. This happened to two men who are led by dreams to meet each other at the place where Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry, maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings and his father's still gonna answer his son's prayer. Father, I pray that they'd be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe there's a kainos anthropostle, one new man in Christ. God is raising up in this hour to heal all the divides around us. Stand to your feet. You know, I shared the story about my Great, 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 great uncle who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But we got to remember, listen, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, we are healed. And he's breaking down, he has broken down every wall of division. He took all those hostilities and wore them as a crown on the cross to remove them from our lives. And then he calls us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, to be ambassadors of this beautiful ministry to reconcile people to God and to each other. Every time we erect a wall of division, it's like we're trying to put Jesus back on the cross. And he ain't going there. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they always are in what? Agreement. We wonder sometimes why God doesn't get involved in our mess. It's because where he sees disunity, God can't be himself. But right now, I believe God wants to make somebody a new creation. Everything can change right now. It's not a mistake that you're listening to me right now. It's not a mistake that you're in this room or watching online. God wants to break not just generational curses in your family. He wants you to be the one that tells the new storyline. I don't know what kind of hurt has been passed down on you and your family. I don't know where you are in your, in your life and your walk. But with every head bowed and every eye, eye closed, God doesn't want to give you an upgrade. You're not going to be an upgraded version of your old self. He wants to make you a kainos, new, distinct, the same self, same spirit that's in Christ Jesus. He wants to deposit that in your life right now. And everything can change in just a moment if you'll respond. You're here right now. You don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. You say right now, Lord, this is not a mistake. I know this message is for me. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you right now. Raise your hand all over this room. Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? I see that hand. I see that hand. Anybody else? Come on. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's the thing. If you would be so bold as to meet me down right here, 
from those in the balcony to all around this room. Come on, let's give them a clap right now, y'all. Let's encourage them right now. Come on, this is family business. Somebody's prayers have been answered. Some praying mama, some praying papa. The days of the upgrades are done. Newness of life is about to be released in your life right now. Come on. Come on. Oh, come on, baby girl. I see you. Come on. Come on. Oh, I see you, young man. Come on. Come on. I beseech you by the mercies of God. Be reconciled to us. By his great love, he loved. He loved you so much that he'd rather die than spend eternity without you. Yes, Lord. Come on, let's all say this prayer together. Jesus. We overheard you praying for us. I receive your death on the cross as payment for all of my sins. You said if I confess my sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I'm tired of the upgrades, God. I thank you now for the new beginning. Fill me with your spirit and the power of your love. Thank you for making me a new creation and the new beloved community in Christ Jesus. Come on, let's give the Lord a clap and a shout. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. We give you glory, King of glory. I am so proud of God. I'm so proud of you for taking this amazing step. And there's some of you out here right now, you've seen, we're gonna pray this together, all right? But you've seen in your own family, your own life, just generational patterns that just divide from all different kinds of sin, whether it's divorce, after divorce, after divorce in your families, adultery after divorce, after adultery, after adultery, drug addictions, occultism, witchcraft, all those different things that have been hostile to separate us from God. Everybody talks about generational curses. Yes, they're real and they're powerful. But listen, let me tell y'all, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever. And the blessings are way more powerful than the curses. Where there's division, hatred, racism, whatever. You seen that happen in your family? You want to stop it right now and start a new storyline? Come down front. Let's pray this thing together. Let's break this junk off our families. Come on. So Father, right now we come before you. And we forgive the sins of our forefathers. We thank you for forgiving us where we've partaken in those sins as well. We lay aside these sins which so easily have beset us and our families. Every sin of adultery, 
fornication, lust, every sin of divorce, division, bigotry, hatred, racism, unforgiveness. We erect the cross of Christ between us and those generational curses. And now, God, we call forth the redemptive purpose for which you placed us into the families we were born into. And we call forth generational blessings. We call forth spiritual inheritances. We call forth all the generational blessings. We ask you to make us part of your new storyline. We receive your invitation to be reconcilers, God. We receive your invitation to be part of this Kainos Anthropos, the one new man in Christ. Catch us up in your storyline, God. In Jesus' name, now give the Lord a clap and a shout. And as a father in this house, I just release a father's blessing over every single one of you in Jesus' name. Spirit of adoption over you right now in the name of Jesus. You don't have a church home. Oh, we pray that you find the right one. But let me tell you something. There are people who will love you here in this place right now who want to connect with you because this is not just Sunday morning for us. This is all through the week. We want to be connected to what God is doing in your life and help facilitate what God is doing in your life. Everything has changed. Old things have passed away. New things have come. God has restored relationships that didn't exist before. And he's healing marriages right now. I hear it right now in the spirit. There's a marriage on the brink right now. And the Lord is reaping up, releasing an apocalypse reconciliation experience. And he's going to restore peace that's been disturbed in your marriage right now. Your husband's coming home a different way. In the name of Jesus. Bless the Lord. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com. 